Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and uh, welcome to tonight's Commonwealth Club program. My name is Charles Atkins. I'm a partner at McKinsey and & Company and also a member of the McKinsey Global Institute. When the COVID-19 pandemic began, it dramatically changed the way that people worked, lived and shopped. The biggest change was where and how people worked. With hybrid work here to stay, cities faced the challenge of developing mixed-use neighborhoods and the construction of more adaptable buildings with multi-use office and retail space. Tonight, we'll be discussing how the real estate in a number of cities has not kept up with these behavioral shifts, what that means for the future of these cities, and why the vibrancies of many cities are at risk. Tonight, we are joined by Dr. Lola Wetzel and Peter Calthrop. Dr. Wetzel is a senior partner of McKinsey & Company and director of the McKinsey Global Institute, the company's business and economics research arm. She leads McKinsey City Special Initiative, which is a global initiative covering cities in both developed and emerging markets, and is responsible for convening with city, regional, and national authorities in more than 40 geographies around the world. Dr. Wurzel and her colleagues recently published McKinsey's report on the COVID-19 pandemic and its lasting impact on urban real estate markets. Peter Calthrop is an urban design and planning principal at HDR. For over 40 years, Peter has worked on major urban design, planning, and architecture projects in the US, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. He was recently named a top 100 most influential urbanist by, by Planetizen and has won the Urban Land Institute's prestigious J.C. Nichols Prize for Visionaries in Urban Development. Peter is one of the founders and first board president of Congress for New Urbanism. Lola and Peter, welcome. So let me start off by asking you, uh, maybe you start with you, Lola. What did you find most surprising from the research and what, what emerged from you as some of the key findings? Thank you, uh, Charles, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So um, I think that this was, for, the, for us, this was the first time that we really looked at real estate. So everything was surprising. <laughs> we, we, we learned um, a lot, but we did it for, at the, we started at a very high level, but then we very quickly realized that in order to make sense of what was going on, we needed to get very, very specific about the dynamics. And what we discovered was that it was this very specific technology that allowed us to leave our offices that created a dynamic, a, 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 a stochastic moment uh, in, in real estate, which fundamentally changes our lives. Uh, and I think that's, that was perhaps the most surprising thing, that simply a bit of software, a bit of hardware, and suddenly we've changed our lives. We've changed our, where we live, we changed where we shop, we changed obviously where we work. Um, so I think that was, uh, that was the biggest surprise, is how fast that happened. It was, it was as if we had been waiting for it that we knew that this was not a good way of living. But it just took that little bit, well, apart from a you know, once in every hundred years pandemic, um, to make, it, uh, make the change. Right. And now it seems to be here. It seems to be the way we, the way we work, the way we live. So. Yeah. COVID-19 represented a real discontinuity in the way that we, we, an we unlock. And work. I think right. a really an unlock. It just sort of says, well, you know, you don't have to do it the same way. You now have an excuse. So just as <clears throat> our uh, restaurants spilled onto our sidewalks, we mm -hmm. realized, well, that's a good thing. <laughs> so why didn't we do that before? Right. Uh, and so we, we liked it, actually. 
<laughs> and Peter, for, from your perspective, you've obviously studied real estate for quite some time and you've, you've been able to track the changes over, over many years. And I'm curious from your vantage point, with this sort of moment of discontinuity, what were the things that were surprising about the findings in the report and, 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 and where was it really confirming what you had already believed and had seen in motion for quite some time? Well, for me, uh, the notion is long overdue. The idea of people traveling great distances to one you know, central location that is a single-use domain, nothing but office towers, uh, has long been a, a failing strategy. And over time, over the last 30 years, now I'm now identified with 40 years, so I'll say 40 <laughs> years, uh, we've watched polycentric metropolitan regions emerge where jobs are decentralized. And so to a certain degree, this is just an acceleration of a trend that's been going on for a very, very long time. Now, the dangerous thing is that we keep thinking about the world in terms of us, uh, the people who can sit in a screen, the, uh, at a screen and work, the people who don't have to bring their jobs to work, uh, their bodies to work is what I really mean. Um, and they're the people who keep our communities running. And they've been displaced for a very, very long time. Um, and so there's this companion phenomena, a region that isolates high-end jobs in commute, long commute locations, and then uh, no longer satisfies the need for workforce housing within the communities that those people actually need to be present in, is a, is a, a region that's vastly out of balance. And that's mm -hmm. what we're seeing. So this is another one of those imbalances that have been revealed by crisis. You know, the, the previous crisis, 2008, the housing crisis, we think it was all about Wall Street. Maybe we mm -hmm. can talk about this and subprime mortgages. The reality was we built too much of the wrong kind of housing in the wrong place. We built, we built housing uh, in distant subdivisions on cul-de-sacs that were designed around Ozzie and Harriet. Uh, when all of a sudden we were a country where the demographics had shifted deeply, where the middle class was no longer wealthy enough to, to uh, afford that product, and where most people didn't want to have to drive that far to get to it. So if you actually go and look at the statistics, what failed in that moment were distant subdivisions, not housing in general. So the same thing is happening now, mm. and what your report is revealing is that there's too much of the wrong kind of product in the wrong place, and it needs to fundamentally change. And so these are systemic shifts. I don't think it's just about technology. Mm. Um, uh, and I think that it leads us to confront issues that may lead us in a healthier direction. Yeah. So I see it as a good thing, even though people who own real estate around this building are very, very unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great lead-in. What are some of the factors beyond technology that you think are really important to, to shape the future dynamic? And, and what does that mean for, for the future of, of uh, policy around urban environments? You know, it's hard to unpack it. You, you tend to want to talk about it in one dimension at a time, you know, that, that uh, white-collar workers now can stay home two days a week. Mm. That's, you know, is that, that is a big deal. That mm -hmm. is a shift because, you know, the world lives in plus or minus 5% of this, and all of a sudden there's an economic crisis because there's all right. this debt piled up on that last incremental 5% participating in the way they're mm. uh, supposed to, according to the pro formas. 
and yet we have this bigger asymmetry. And I'll try and keep tying it back, but I keep getting, I will get off topic. No, so you guys have to well, <laughs> worry about that. Um, you know, people say, well, why don't we just take these downtowns and we can convert some of the buildings to housing? Isn't it better to have mixed use? Wouldn't that be a better place? Well, the bottom line is uh, it's incredibly expensive. So it turns out to that that would produce very expensive housing, which is actually not something we need. We need workforce housing. We need housing that's affordable to the lower middle class. Uh, and, and on top of that, re-inhabiting these places now that are that are that are weakened by the loss of their central purpose mm-hmm. <laughs> you know people throbbing in wealthy people coming in every day and spending money on the you know going out to fancy lunches and all the rest of that uh you know it kind of leaves the streets empty and we now know what happens with empty streets at the same time we have the homeless crisis right and so it's going to be hard to imagine rebuilding these uh, central zones until we face up to some more systemic issues, such as affordable housing, workforce housing, and homelessness. Uh, I don't see how you can do it. Even you can figure out the technology of replacing all the curtain walls with operable windows, which I think be hard yeah. to live without an operable window, wouldn't it? I think that that's as as you're saying that you know the remodel the office space into housing. It doesn't, as we've all seen the articles, that the floor plates are too big. You live in shadows. It's uh, it's it's really not going to move the needle much. But I thought one of the things that we found interesting was that th- these other factors that make a difference. One is the uh, the ratio of commuter to residents, and so the higher the ratio of commuter to residents, the bigger the impacts. Which sort of, and a lot. The other thing is monoculture. So monocultures. Uh, of office space, particularly um, those t- so sort of when you that and basically characterizes Market Street. Um, so that is a recipe for people when you no longer have to do that, you don't want to do that. And so you all of a sudden stop and then you have this big hole in the ground. And I think that that is quite specific to a few places, notably mm-hmm. here, uh, Dallas, um, parts of Boston, uh, London. Um, but not so much uh, uh, Stuttgart, um, Tokyo. Uh, I mean, I think it's fascinating the way we looked at all these different so-called superstar cities and found that some of these factors related to how they thought about community mm-hmm. and how they integrated the variety of usages and most importantly, the variety of people who were allowed to live there. And I say allowed because it's actually that. And so if you price things up to the point where no one has the income, well, you're not allowing them to live there. You actually have these places actually made space for people. So that, I think, was some of the policy factors. And as we get to, we say that's that's what we see as necessary in in a very big, big way. Right. Uh, Didn't you find uh, I would have bet and maybe I didn't read long and deep enough here that Tokyo would have been the least impacted by this phenomena because it's always been a profoundly mixed use place. Mm. We, we firebombed it. It was leveled, Mm. uh, but they kept all the individual parcels of land in the same configuration, which were tiny. Mm. And then you get these huge, you know, very tall, narrow buildings, which are kind of elegant and bizarre, 
But the streetscapes are the same convoluted human scale, mixed use environments. Mm. And some of the parcels remained for affordable housing and some became aggregated into. So it is actually the one of the best paradigms of the kind of mixed use that high density can take. Yeah. And so it. It was. It, it, Tokyo it, was really one of the one of the least affected, as you said, and I said one or two others like Stuttgart, I think. Uh, um, China was sort of its own thing. Shanghai was along with everybody else. Beijing. Um, Beijing was interesting because Beijing was a very policy-driven city. They were actively trying to move people out of the center before the pandemic. So it actually, the pandemic stopped that. For and jobs out of the center, every, right? What, like, did they ever get that new capital bill? Yeah, working, working. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always, China's always building something. So, um, but yeah, I think that, you know, that, with the, the, that moral, that fabric. So the hardest thing to, to build is fabric. Right. Buildings are relatively easy. Fabric is hard. <laughs> yeah, and so if we if we take this, sounding like an urban designer, <laughs> new urbanist. <laughs> so if we bring this home to to the city that we're in today, and we think about what can we draw as lessons for some of the leaders that are that are managing the city, how do we 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 adapt to some of these behavior shifts, these preference shifts that we're seeing on the part of of, of workers and and residents and what can we tell from cities like Japan that may hold lessons for us here in San Francisco? Oh, you want the mic? No, I think you start because okay. <laughs> you're, um, you're here. <laughs> you know, I, I, th- these are systemic changes that need systemic solutions. The systemic solutions take time and are, you know, deeply embedded in policy and economics and bad habits and legacy plans and, you know, a range of things. So there is no quick fix here. Mm-hmm. Everybody says, let's have a, you know, a workshop and figure this out. Uh, sorry, that's not going to happen. When we look beneath the surface here in the Bay Area, and I, I enjoyed the way this report didn't just isolate the central business district, but literally said, no, the core of the region is what we're talking about. And the core of the region is actually three counties, San Francisco, Alameda, and uh, uh, not Santa Clara, but uh, San Mateo. Mateo. Um, Should have included Santa Clara, really. In the suburbs. Where the job centers are. And so if if you broaden your thoughts to, well, what would fix all of those places, not downtown? If you get stuck in saying, well, what are we gonna do with these glass towers? I think that you're gonna spend a lot of useless time because you got to come at that indirectly. So if you think about that larger domain, the biggest crisis there is workforce housing. I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's just plain at the heart of all the dilemmas. The people that work in schools and hospitals and fire fire chiefs and the people who keep a city running, actually the restaurant workers, Mm. I mean, on any level, if they can't get there, uh, if they can't afford to live nearby, the whole thing begins to implode. And if it implodes, then the businesses that are looking for the best place, the most attractive place so they can attract the best workforce are going to say, well, maybe there is someplace else. The problem is in America, there really isn't someplace else because we've turned our back on workforce housing. We don't have a paradigm for it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, we've vilified the idea of multifamily. We have NIMBYs running most 
cities and saying, we're not interested in having those people, even though those people are the ones who are teaching their kids and providing the daycare and doing all the stuff that we need the most. Uh, we don't want them actually living here. We just want them to miraculously appear every day and then disappear. So um, we need to find ways of overcoming that. And I will say the state of California actually recently passed a law, AB 2011, that begins for the first time to do that. It says, sorry, cities, you can no longer control what kind of housing gets built in your community. We're going to, as of right, say you can convert strip commercial. Mm -hmm. So this is a parallel, actually. Strip commercial died a long time ago Mm -hmm. and is a zombie land use, you know. And on some level, you know, the zombies are kind of interesting. And, you know, it's the low-rent environment where sometimes interesting things happen. So I'm not totally down on it. But it is undervalued, underutilized, and everywhere. Right. Mm. And it was Amazon. It's the same phenomena that basically said you can work from home. You can also shop from home. So it's another version of how does technology change the physical world? Well, it says this stuff is now under underutilized. And therein lies a huge resource for infilling affordable workforce housing throughout our existing And I, I think what I, what I hear you saying, Peter, is that that is an easier and a, maybe a more therefore available um, nut to crack or a solution than trying to go tear down a $400 million building. And, and, and just that the, the risk profile is... is, is is more attractive right, to, to deal with these strip malls because that then you can build around it and you can build, you can create economic activity and you can create workforce and, and available housing in a much more organic way than if you try to take, you know, these buildings here and fix them right now. So just a, the way I see it evolving is if we can solve the workforce housing problem, we, you know, the, the homelessness is a product of mental health facilities not being available and investments in taking care of people that are um, no longer able to take care of themselves, and also poverty, and also the lack of affordable housing. It's all three of those things all bunched together. But once you begin to really take on these difficult problems like that, you can begin again to see cities and towns and urban centers revitalize in ways that then attract businesses, yeah. that then say, well, I need you know, 5,000 square feet um, on, on the strip, or I need 5,000, uh, you know, 5,000, 50,000 mm-hmm. square feet somewhere. Oh, maybe it's one of these old yeah. downtown buildings. But until you revitalize the regional the region. structure, yeah. right. I don't see how you can reoccupy these places. Right. And I think your comments point a lot to the importance of policy in setting the tone for systematic for systemic change. What's the role of the private sector in that? Well, um, I mean, I think that first of all, the vast majority of real estate in our built environment is constructed by the private sector. Right. So, in essence, the the the, the environment is 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 mediated through. Um, the interests of, uh, of of the profit mo- profit motive and, and and the idea of valuation. Right. The question is, and how does one put a value on the fabric or on the environment or on? But so because the private sector will generally do what the incentives 
that are given to it encourage it to do. Mm. So the rules of the game need to be defined. So it, the private sector is an incredibly capable engine, but it has to be guided. It has to be shown what what what's the track? <laughs> where where are we going here? And so that's I think that's the nature of the collaboration. Um, but uh, no, I, I I I do believe that this uh, idea that we can create better. Um, definition of fabric through mixed use, mixed income uh, environments. That is true at a regional level. It's also, I think, true at a district, even at a building level. And that's the kind of thing that if we unlock the creativity of the private sector to say, now, we, we don't just want you to, to build the cheapest thing or the fastest thing um, or the biggest thing, uh, but we want you to build the best thing and we want you to, and we will be very willing to define that for you. <laughs> Uh, I think that, uh, that that's where you really unlock creativity here. You know, um, I'll come back to this law as an example of exactly what you're talking about. This new as a right law basically says you no longer need to get permission and overcome the local NIMBYs and the city council people who actually know that infill workforce housing is a good thing, but they're frightened mm. to stand up and say so in front of angry crowds. All of a sudden, okay, it's as of right, but the law literally then says the developer gets to choose within a certain envelope, which is proportional to the street and the location and things like that. Within an envelope, we in New Urbanists call this form-based codes, um, you, you can build what you want to. You figure it out. Maybe you need to do a senior project there, or maybe you need to do... Um, SRO here, or maybe you need to do student housing there. You know, who knows? This is what the private sector is brilliant at, figuring out how to optimize any nook and cranny of our physical environment. And the, ma the moment the planners stand in and start saying, it's going to be all this, it's going to be all that, that's when the thing dies dead. Now, the law also, fascinatingly, says there's no parking requirement. Hmm. So if a developer says... Well, in this location, let's say in uh, Redwood City near the Caltrain station on El Camino, let's say, um, I think I could rent places and not give people parking because they can walk to center town. They can walk to Caltrain's. I'll do that. Now, the moment you start getting a lot of – and the law also requires 15% uh, inclusionary. So there is an affordable component as well. So we're getting free, unsubsidized, affordable housing, and it allows ground floor commercial. Mm. So we work and all the rest of that or local jobs could find a place in these buildings, no constraints. So it really is a kind of – you know, in a, in the right location, you let the marketplace choose what to do. Yeah. Uh, and and one, you get tremendous investment out of that. Yeah. Well, and one just to not make it all about San Francisco. So from L.A., yeah. we had Triple H, uh, a billion-dollar bond issuance. And uh, we sort of we've spent about $650, 700000000 dollars of it. And we were, things were coming in at $650,000, $700,000 a door. And they said, well, with the last two or $300 million, why don't we run a challenge? <laughs> Right. Or just say, like, we want to have this kind. We, we, we would like you to have innovative designs and come up with what you want. And, yeah, surprise, surprise, we, much better results. So, yeah. And the stakes are, are high for this revitalization of, of urban centers. You've talked about the financial viability of the cities. You've talked about homelessness and affordable housing. But also, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that cities are really the engine of productivity for our economy. And that in many ways, what, what often gets lost in... Uh, discussions of the economy and, and productivity is the the central 
nature of the agglomeration effects, that ability for um, skilled workers to, to co-locate and unskilled workers to co-locate in urban centers, generate new ideas and, and, and make the businesses and the economy more productive. One of the questions that I think is, has been asked over the last few years is, has you know, hybrid work changed that? Do we think that we're going to lose some of the vibrancy of the, the, the productivity engine that were cities and the central business district over the last, last few decades as we change the, the, the evolution of cities? I mean, I, as, uh, as Peter was saying, we shouldn't narrowly define the apex of productivity and innovation to be, you know, the 10 square blocks on Market Street. Mm -hmm. So it's unlikely to be the case. Um, but, but there are such things as, you know, proximity matters, the ability to uh, get together and exchange ideas and do so in a very dense, frequent, uh, ongoing way. That, that defines our, our, what we know about development, about productivity, about innovation, about how we get new ideas. So no question that that's important. I, I, I actually think that, you know, the monoculture that we created, these la large glass towers, why would that be a good place to actually interact? Have you ever tried to kind of go floor to floor in a glass tower? I mean, that doesn't actually work. <laughs> so there's that, that isn't it. And uh, the best, the most interaction you get is in the subway station and you're trying to avoid people. Um, the, uh, so... I think that, you know, consciously thinking about how our built environment, we shape our buildings and then our buildings shape us, Winston. So um, that's the key here. And to then have policy which allows you to say, look, it's purposeful. We want to achieve something, but we're not going to tell you how to do it. Mm -hmm. You have to think about it. That's the key. So I don't think we're at risk of this unless we consciously exclude people. And now that is the biggest risk is that, and we do that through sometimes regulation, sometimes pricing, uh, sometimes um, the absence of, uh, of, of public goods, you know, such as safety. <laughs> um, so those are ways you keep things out and you don't allow this to happen. So that's the entirety, I think, of the, of, of, of the, of the challenge here. And yes, we have to, there's no alternative that mm -hmm. we have never found a, a better, an alternative development model than this idea of high frequency, high density of interactions, which is what we call a city. Right. Right. I, I actually don't believe it's going to last. I, I, I think people want to go someplace, gather and have, direct interaction, especially with the people they're collaborating with. I, you know, to a certain degree, I think it, it will be both. It's like they say about most of these high-tech things. It's like, this is an enhancement. But it's, what is an enhancement to? It is still an enhancement to people collaborating face-to-face. -face. Now, if a group can work, a smaller group can work together someplace, and then they can get online and, you know, talk to somebody else that's an enhancement it's not a replacement yeah, I agree. that's the whole and and so but I, what i do like about it is that it allows the uh, decentralization and the and the more human scale workplace um to be scattered and spread in ways that are more accessible than this idea that we have huge corporations that need huge buildings that all need to sit shoulder to shoulder that's and, you know, we know in the Bay Area that Silicon Valley didn't evolve out of downtown. Downtown's always been trying to steal a little bit of that energy. Yeah. And then, you know, every once in a while they get a bit of it and it collapses, you know, and it, it goes back to the w warehouses and the garages and the, and the you know, the cheap strip yeah. buildings and all the rest of that. And that's where, 
interesting stuff happens. And so I, I think that that's the way it's going to continue to happen. And the good news is the 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 capacity to communicate online uh, enhances that, but it doesn't replace the need to get out of your house and actually be someplace. Um, now, the best of all worlds is you can be someplace where you can walk to work, and that becomes more possible in this yeah. Right. world now but the telecommuting you know 2000 miles from um, bend oregon i don't think is the best outcome of this technology uh, i i agree with peter totally on this and i i just wanted to add one very brief anecdote at the beginning of the pandemic i was talking to another colleague who i he hasn't I didn't ask him whether I could use the name on the analogy, but I loved it. It's like we, we have to avoid the Versailles model of development right. <laughs> where the seigneurial estates <clears throat> house the privileged folks who once every week or so visit the, the, the city to see what's going on there. And then uh, the services cluster around the estates. Uh, I think that that is an inefficient model, <laughs> that is, uh, is a, a, let alone an unjust one. <laughs> So what I hear you saying is rather than this necessarily representing a risk to cities like San Francisco and the productivity of the of the workers, there's also really an opportunity here that by making cities more inclusive, more more diverse for different socioeconomic, um, you know, socioeconomic uh, status workers, that there's really an opportunity to bring more innovation, more of the the sort of spirits of creative destruction that we like to see um, in, in sort of... Or the effect, sort of I think the agglomeration phenomena right. becomes enhanced by decentralized polycentric regions, right. not by single point yeah. central districts at all. And, you know, and if you stop and look at how these places evolve, that's always the way the new stuff happens. Mm-hmm. And then the old places try to grab it on, grab onto it and and capture it, and then the moment they get it, they strangle it dead. <laughs> yeah. So we call it multipolar urban development because when you look at it from space, it looks like mud. <laughs> you splattered it. <laughs> is, the, is the notion of, uh, as you say, if, if that's the paradigm moving toward, is the notion of the central business district, is that really retrograde and, and outmoded at this point? Has been for 40 years. In yeah. my book. No, right. no, I, I mean, I think it's this idea that there is a center and that, you know, this iron lung. I mean, that's always been right. viewed, I think, as a... I remember when Jerry Brown came, became uh, mayor in Oakland and every predecessor had said, well, the answer to downtown is more office buildings or the answer to downtown is a stadium uh, or, you know, some huge shopping mall or some single-use phenomenon. And Jerry just said, no, the answer for downtown is housing. And he just started, a, you know, a really serious infill housing program to bring life back into it. It still struggles. Nobody can point to Oakland and say this is now Brooklyn, the Brooklyn of the Bay Area. But it's the right idea. I mean, I, I of course, live in Shanghai. So we have districts and each district is about half a million people. Uh, and each one of them has sort of if you told them that Shanghai would have a central business district, they would they would revolt. They would they would they would just push you know push back because each one of them wants to have its own aspiration, and and feels empowered to do so. So I I think there's a governance aspect into this as well. We shouldn't overlook that. Right. And uh, the capacity and of, of local governance at a very so London is another good example. The boroughs are very strong in what they can do, and so you do have a lot more livable space and and mixed use in in, in most London areas. And let me add to that. You know. 
because I will keep coming back to the foundation of housing and where people live. You know, Silicon Valley is being choked by the fact that it doesn't have enough uh, workforce and affordable housing. It's choking the the potential for this kind of um, uh, really creative, decentralized emerging of work workplaces and focal points and all the rest of that. Um, and so... You know, it lived on a legacy. Uh, you know, it, it hadn't outgrown its housing capacity. Um, it doesn't have good accessibility. You can't basically say, well, live in the East Bay and work in Silicon Valley. So until it solves its housing problem, this phenomenon you're talking about, which is mm. the healthy growth of jobs, can't really become robust. Mm. You know, this is the foundational yeah. issue. And so um, the two things go hand in hand, but the but the situation is set for this kind of growth. And then we see it at the state level. I'm actually just doing some analysis for Colorado. Same thing there. Businesses and jobs are leaving environments that are housing in housing crisis. It, well, it turns out the whole of the United States is in a housing crisis. Only 25% of households today can afford to buy a median uh, priced home in America. We have really gotten off track. And, you know, so where do people go? Uh, and in, and if the people can't arrive and be around, you can't grow the businesses. And if you can't grow the businesses, you can't grow wealth and well-being. Yeah. So, I mean, these are deeply connected things. Right. So I'm going to turn to a few audience questions that have that have come in as well. And a lot of our discussion has been centered around some of the urban centers. But one of the questions that, that also came came up was the phenomenon of Zoom towns. You think of, you know, locally here, that would be the truckies. But you think of Hudson Valley. You think of um, some of the towns that have really boomed in, in states like Idaho. And, you know, the question is, is that, a, is that a blip? Or do we see that as being somewhat of a long-term trend? Because they've they've really disrupted a lot of those local economies they've driven up house prices they've displaced in some cases local residents and and disrupted some of the tourist infrastructure around there uh and the question is whether we think that's going to endure or is that is that really just a a, a passing moment well in the report we did see of course that i mean one of the big findings was this outflow and uh of, and so some urban cores lost 5 to 7% of their population and some of them went to idaho um, so um, it's, 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 of course, reality. But as, as, as Peter was saying, that sort of the idea that, you know, that there would be a viable economic model, which consists of sitting in front of a screen 2,000 miles away and pho phoning it in, is that we haven't yet proved that model. Right. And, and so I, I think it might be uh, risky to suggest that. The, you know, and, and the idea that rich people from somewhere else descending on your town will disrupt your economy, yeah, I think that's kind of a reality. <laughs> we, right. know, we know that part. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really, you know, we get the economy we, we, we deserve in some ways. I mean, if we allow that to happen, then that's what we get. Uh, but I, I wouldn't lose hope because, I, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, there's a, there is a model which is about, you know, essentially saying how do you integrate wealth into a community in a fair and equitable way, which supports the supports all the income and is actually better for, ultimately for the whole community. Because, yes, we all need firemen right. and teachers and sanitation workers. Otherwise, you get to pick up your own trash. <laughs> so a lot's been made of the, the so-called doom loop in San Francisco. And there's been several strategies, you know, 
um, outline to to potentially transform that. You know, one of the questions is, you know, can San Francisco be transformed into an art center to start to offset as as corporations leave the city? Um, Mayor Breed has talked about potentially moving um, city worker offices downtown to start to offset some of the the demand shifts. Do you think the strategies like these could be effective? And, and if not, what you know, what are some of the strategies that you think would be more effective in trying to to rejuvenate cities like San Francisco? I think that that's band aids, you know, and uh, people have to feel like they they're thinking. I mean, it's always healthy to think and kind of be creative about well, what can we do right now? Uh, but if that becomes a distraction to the systemic changes that we need to get serious about, finally then uh, they actually have negative consequences. We have an illusion that we're going to fix it by papering over the problem as opposed to getting down to the really core issue. The Bay Area, California, will continue to lose jobs if it doesn't have workforce housing that's affordable to the people who need to do the work we need done at every level of the economy, period, end of story. And, you know, until that gets addressed and also some other, you know, Really tough ones like homelessness and and uh, healthcare and things like that. Um, it's hard to imagine that you're going to subsidize some artists that you know. And which artists are actually are you going to find who want to sit inside a curtain wall building? I'm sorry, I don't know any. <laughs> What's the role of of design and? You know, urban design in, in, in solving some of these problems, and, it, and at what level does it does it really matter? You know, it strikes me that you know trying to solve it. With I'm a, not answering that. It's <laughs> too big of a softball for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, it strikes me that they're trying to solve it within, as you say, just within the, the the city walls versus in 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 larger geographic agglomerations is a is a flawed approach to begin with. Uh, I, it sort of, for me, would depend on what you mean, what one means about urban design. Because, I mean, I think that we need to just sort of recognize that these systems are overlapping, interlocking, and they go at different levels, whether right. it's the building, the neighborhood, the city, the region, the cluster, the, the country, the state. So all of these things, there are, and there are decisions which should be made at different levels based on the information available and where you can actually create something brilliant, something amazing. That's that's the key of this, that if we don't have the ability to coordinate, we can't do big things. Uh, but if we don't have the ability to, to, to understand the very specific local situations, we can't do the right things. Uh, so both are needed. We need to do big things and we need to do the right things. And mm-hmm. that is ultimately about dialogue. So I, I always feel like design is a dialogue. It's a, it's a conversation and it's a conversation that has to be inclusive, back to the, the core thing. Um, and housing, as Peter emphasized, is absolutely right because we all need to sleep. Every 24 hours, we need to sleep. If we do not sleep, we cannot speak or we don't speak very intelligently. I certainly include myself. Uh, and so that's key. So if we don't allow people to sleep, they can't speak. We can't have a dialogue. We have really bad design. So <laughs> that is, <laughs> that's sort of my logic there. <laughs> You know, and there are systems of doing this that are actually, once again, enhanced by our technology that we have at our fingertips. So there's some, there's real synergy here. Um, For a long time, I've advocated the idea of regional design. We can design our regions. 
and you say, oh, no, this is all organic. We can't begin to control a whole region. I'm sorry. An urban growth boundary is step one in, an, in, a, in a regional design. It's where is the surface of the building, as it were. Uh, step two is where, how, how do you configure the circulation system so that, the, that mobility is enhanced for everybody? Um, you know, the parallels are pretty straightforward. So how do you do it? Um, we developed a system called scenario planning, which basically said you can take a whole regional map and you can develop different scenarios for how it grows over the next 20, 30 years. I mean, these are all known quantities. And then you can model with computer technology the outcomes of the different scenarios. And then you can take those and offer them to the general public and say, you know, here are four growth scenarios. They have these facets. What do you think? And it, it sounds kind of abstract, but we actually did it for Salt Lake City. Mm. We did, we've done it for many uh, regions around uh, we did it here in the Bay Area once. Um, and, you you know, you get stakeholders involved in shaping the scenarios, and then you model them and get the the impacts. And then all of a sudden you begin to see all the special interest groups lining up around, you know, X, Y, or Z. But what's beautiful is some of the scenarios solve a lot of problems simultaneously, what I call co-benefits. And certainly what we found over and over again is that infill and transit-oriented development uh, had so many co-benefits, less energy, less carbon, less household expenses, less um, uh, uh, traffic, better air quality, better human health because people who walk more tend to be healthier and things like that. I mean, just, you can just list these co-benefits each one co-benefit actually represented a special interest group politically. So you can begin to see how you can organize political change yeah. mm -hmm. using this tool of scenario planning. So then the state of California said, that's a good idea. SB 375 was passed, which required our regional governments. You know you have a regional government, right? Uh, our regional governments to do scenario planning. And they went about doing it, and lo and behold, they found that there are these really thrilling solutions at our fingertips. The unfortunate thing that we still haven't solved is that they have no power to implement any of it. Mm. So they sit there, and whenever they think this is the right direction, the local city council will say, yeah, that's really great, but not here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, but... The point is, is that we have the tools, we have the intelligence, we have the technology, and we have the way to shape political consensus. Mm. Um, we just have legacy institutions and um, jurisdictions that are standing in the way. And, you know, in order to break those barriers, you have to go through some painful times mm -hmm. like we're going through now. Yeah. Yeah. So in a way, you can always look at the painful times as the moment of renewal. Is there a, a city or a, a region, you know, even in these early, early stages of responding to, to the pandemic and the, and the disruptions that have happened, is there a city or a region that you feel is, is leading the way or ahead in terms of how they're responding? Did you, uh, did you study Vancouver as part of the No, we didn't. But, oh, yeah. darn. Yeah. I mean, because I, you know, for me, Vancouver is one of the best models of what I would call regional design. 
they really did put an urban yeah. growth boundary in, and they really did say, we're investing in transit, not freeways. As a matter of fact, most of the center of that uh, metropolitan area has no freeways. We're quite proudful every once in a while when we tear down a little bit of freeway somewhere. Uh, they just never built it. Actually, Mayor Alioto here was the the leader in the United States of saying no to the Eisenhower Freeway Program. We would have had a freeway all the way along the Embarcadero, across the Golden Gate, and straight through the middle of Sausalito. That was all planned by the brilliant engineers, and he stopped it. Mm. So I'm getting off topic. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, that is, a, in my mind, in, at least in northern uh, North America, a really great paradigm. Uh, that growth boundary has stuck. Um, they've built up at really powerful TOD locations. And what I was wondering about, mm, yeah. I wish you guys had studied it, is w- was there enough decentralized housing uh, jobs in that urban pattern to end up more like Tokyo and not have the mm. complete decimation of mm. these one or two singular well, we'll take a look. We'll take a look. But I, I mean, I think that this Good. this pattern of, de- of decentralized um, multipolar development, it's not uncommon. I mean, it exists. And uh, as we said, some European cities are quite robust through this. You, know, you talk about Stuttgart and Munich. Right. Um, um, Vienna, I think, uh, is also, you know, quite always used as a topic. Um, Asia, I mean, sort of, of course, Singapore makes a sort of a fetish about the, all of the, multi, the the village planning and new town development. But I think the reality is, as we were say, saying, is that these governance models have to be a, a fit for the context in which they're applied. We can't just cut and paste Stuttgart on San Francisco right. or, you know, that's not going to work. We have to sort of fight our own battles, go through our own painful process to sort of come up with what is the what is the the decentralized dis- distributed model for us um and la is different from san francisco and so forth so um but i yeah they they are there are cities which are as we said you know quite robust and and, and came through this with uh no major economic tra- trauma or at least much less so, right mm-hmm. and and for many reasons it it, it appears that they they entered the moment of crisis on a much more stable footing because they had, as you say, they'd fundamentally evolved some of these these systems, which is an interlock of sort of sociological dynamics, hmm. economic and political dynamics that have sort of put them in a position to be more resilient when, when these shocks happened. Yeah. Um, but it seems likely that in the U.S. at least there will be short-term pain uh, coming as we as we sort of now experience the effects of of lower downtown traffic. And you know, one of the questions that that has come up here is. You know, do we expect that there's going to be you know, a, a fallout on some of the you know, banking markets, in particular the smaller regional banks? Do we think that this has potential to, to, to create some sort of a financial crisis or, or, or at least a mild version of that? <laughs> no, we did, we did not go to that point in the, in the research. What we did observe was that, um, we, well, as, as, as we all see now, of course, that uh, we... we are going to have somewhere between 15 and 30 percent um, uh, overcapacity in, in the office sector, and and with that, particularly for grade C, you know, as as quality, we had the flight to quality. What was in grade C moved to grade B. With grade B moved to grade A, so A still, 
you know, pretty okay, but C is pretty disaster. So, uh, and, but I, this is a, an extremely sticky market. I think it's quite fascinating to watch how long people can hold on to something that clearly doesn't have any economic value. <laughs> and uh, and so, yes, time will time will probably tell, and we we'll, might have a bit of bit of bit of trauma. But it doesn't seem to be the thing that will tip us over. I do think there are other things that might <laughs> do do that earlier. And to to Peter's point. You know, job losses and sort of the, the the loss of economic vitality, the erosion of a tax base. I think that that will do it for you, us all quite a bit faster uh, than the sort of decline in the value of the portfolio of some multi-billion-dollar you know equity investor, which is probably yes bad right. news, but not not traumatic at this stage. Mm. So you know, one one of the the questions which has come up in a in a few forms is. You know, the, the, we, we talked about this, this disruption from COVID really being enabled by a, a technology trend, trend or a technology that was really sitting latent that we always could have used, but COVID has, has sort of really triggered then a change in, in hybrid work and remote work uh, as a result of, of video conferencing and related collaboration technologies. You know, looking forward, and, and in San Francisco in particular, there's, there's an enormous buzz about AI about some of the other disruptive technologies that are around the corner. Do you see anything on the horizon that, that could represent yet another disruption? Do you see that as a, as a potential risk? Risk? Or opportunity? No, I think, uh, you know, you have to put your hope in um, innovation. I mean, it's the only way, when I look at all the issues that we have to cope with now, it's the only way we're going to get there. And so AI is probably going to contribute more than it's going to damage. It, you know, and I have no background in this field, so I'm totally <laughs> off the cuff on this. But that's my sense. And it may be just hopeful, you know, oh, uh, grasping at straws. But I don't see it as disruptive. I think it is seeing as something that, once again, can enhance or damage us, which is the way most technology operates. Um, you know... I just see the Bay Area, if it could get certain things to function, like uh, mobility and afford affordable housing and things like that, uh, it just bubbles up with stuff. I mean, biotech uh, mm. industries, uh, you know, Berkeley's building a huge office complex, that, but it's built to suit for biotech. Mm -hmm. And so those who watch actually the the kinds of industries that are emerging and find the right place for them, that's all going to keep happening unless the general uh, economic ambiance is so destructive and the social and cultural uh, existential questions don't get resolved. Then, you know, these things will just easily spring up again and, and, and create all sorts of opportunity and wealth. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I share Peter's optimism. I, I, I would just say AI will really help. Um, in the change of how we do business in that it can, you know, construction being a case in point. I mean, the construction industry fundamentally hasn't changed for 100 years. Yeah. So compared to the automotive industry or the retail industry, and that is because we need intelligence embedded throughout the system at such a low level. And then there's so many intransparencies that you don't have it. Now, AI can do that. AI can, can help the average small mom-and-pop construction firm become that much more effective at scheduling. It can mm -hmm. enable modular developments. It can 
handle the it can, it can incorporate a sustainable bill of materials into into a brick i mean these right. which otherwise you would not get so this is a raw capability so it does create a lot of opportunity i think for us but it also with every technology is i do i think it is a disruption of course and, and so what we have to look for is that we know what we're going to lose we know we know who is not going to make it the horse and buggy you know industry did not survive the internal combustion engine right. uh, but we didn't see howard johnson's coming up because we all of a sudden created a roadside tourism industry which would not have existed before so you know that's the challenge what's the what's the thing that this unlocks that we have a fundamental human need for and i think of course we have fundamental human need for housing uh, we also have for plenty of other things too including properly healthcare at the moment yeah, that, you know this is sits right in the place of my greatest frustration you take two of the most important things in our day-to-day -day life housing and how it's constructed and how expensive it is and mobility because we're now strapped into cars, which we know are destructive to our local environment and to the planetary environment, uh, even if they're electrified. Um, and yet, we still produce housing the way we did, you know, 70 years ago, with hammers and nails on site. And we still think of transit as buses and trains. These are really outdated technologies, and I think there is a disruption coming very quickly. I keep waiting for manufactured housing to really take off. And God bless it, it never seems to get off the ground. It's just like the Wright brothers running down that beach and not being able to launch. It just drives me nuts. But it has to happen. I know it will happen. And that has to be a big part of the solution. Um, the same is true in happening in mobility. When I watch everybody float around on these little scooters and electric bikes, I realize, oh, well, all of a sudden the last mile problem from transit to your door, that's kind of solved. And we're not, we don't have the streetscapes tuned up yet, to, and we don't have the regulations uh, about who goes where and how. But that's you know, one form of disruption. There's another one that's coming. Uh, and I will go into some detail here. Is that okay? That's okay. All right. So, you know, uh, we can't afford light rail. We just can't. I mean, it costs us a million dollars, a hundred million a mile now. It's ridiculous. We can't build enough of it. And if you don't have a lot of transit, transit is not useful because it doesn't get you everywhere. And it's not ubiquitous. Until it's ubiquitous, you know, people will say, yeah, that looks good, but it's over there. It's not here. So we need an affordable form of transit. I think something you might want to call autonomous rapid transit. Not autonomous vehicles, not private vehicles running around empty, doing the shopping for somebody or dropping somebody off at one place and going home, you know, doubling. You know, all the analysis of autonomous vehicles shows that there's probably a doubling of VMT. And if we think that a single vehicle occupant vehicle traveled. is bad what vehicle miles traveled yeah vehicle miles <laughs> travels yeah which is really the bottom line for you know what happens on our streets so if you double the vehicle miles traveled well just think of it this way if you think a single occupant vehicle is bad and a zero occupant vehicle is really bad on the moon. <laughs> and this is what this is what we get if we use that technology that way if we use it 
to be the next generation of transit if we give it dedicated right-of-ways, say, down the middle of these strips hmm. where we're going to put all the new housing, and you have four-person modules that can you can go to and safely move along a dedicated route but not have to stop at every station and all the rest of that, and which costs almost nothing because it's, what, the time? We're out of time? Oh, sorry. Anyway, I won't talk any more about that, but they are building the first generation of it from downtown San Jose to the San Jose airport, this uh, autonomous rapid transit. So with the innovations like that, we can have affordable, ubiquitous transit. With innovations in the housing production world, we can have, if we have the sites, we can have affordable housing. So we have to look to technology to solve these big problems and bring us into the next generation of how we get things done. Construction, of course, being the, the one sector of the economy that has grown progressively less productive over time, which uh, a, lot of, a lot of folks don't know. Um, if anything, you know, what you're saying is that technology offers a, a path through or a path out of some of the, the, the dilemmas that we face in terms of how it, we reduce No, it, it, it's totally an unlock. I mean, yeah. so any, almost anything to do with the built environment, I would say so there are three things. Unlock the land, lower the cost, find the money. Right. So unlock the land is policy. Lower the cost is largely technology. Find the money is about financial innovation. (laughs) Say more about the last one. I mean, if you, you know, for example, AB 2011 unlocks the land. Mm -hmm. And let's say we get, you know, manufactured housing to finally succeed from a technology standpoint. Why doesn't the financing just, you know... Uh, burst through the door. I mean, it would. Seem- I think it's risk sharing. I think it's like where who's willing to put the capital up, and so like as you can see right now in the commercial markets, nobody's willing to put any capital up. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I mean that a large portion. That's what society is there to, and government is there to sort of help. And back to the public-private collaboration. I mean, that's the point, is that, you know, society can take a risk that the private sector won't look at and say, well, I I just don't feel like this environment is going to to enable me to do it, particularly with all these barriers. Uh, But California has been an innovator in this regard. Uh, So joint powers authorities, I think. You know that 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 model was uh, was something that that we developed here, um, and it's a seven eight billion dollar market. So I mean, it has its issues. Nothing is perfect, uh, but I think this idea that we need to sort of recognize that r- the risks need to be taken, and we need to take them at the as large a portfolio as we can, because that allows us to do to frankly get things done to be more right. to be safer about it. So. Right. So you know, we've talked a lot about the the future of work. We've talked a lot about housing and the future of affordable housing. What about shopping and retail? You know, how do we see the, the patterns around retail changing? And, and you know, what, what is the future of shopping going to look like? Well, we, we, uh, in the report, we noted that. I mean, uh, well, one of the things I didn't say was important, that, so, that with the lockstep relationship between these, you know, the decline in office attendance and the decline in retail footfall and then the uh, suburbanization of the people moving. moving. So that, that all went in tandem. So, yes, very challenged uh, sort of retailers who had subsisted on the, uh, the, the tragic expressions of self of our office workers in their afternoons off. Uh, and so that... Uh, that I think is uh, is obviously leaving a gap, but I mean, as we look at the average American um, 
non-strip mall <laughs> shopping environment, a lot more experiential. 20 to 25% is easily medical or educational or some other in-person service kind of experience. So I think that's clearly why you go to a collective shopping experience now is to be around somebody that some things and people that you want that you really prefer to do that in person. Um, And it's interesting. I I mean, out of China, the context there is that we we saw that the shopping, the online shopping just basically has plateaued at around 30 to 35 percent of uh, of retail spend. And that's been going that's as the country which really drove it farthest and fastest. Uh, that that's interesting to note that still 60-70% is is clearly still offline. But mm-hmm. um. I think it's 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 a matter that people want to get out of their house and go and you know run into other people and experience a social life. And the shopping environments that that enhance a social interaction are the ones that succeed. Mm-hmm. So I think we've got just a few more minutes left, and maybe to to, to bring us home, you know, is a question about you know, if we think about some of the dynamics at play here and what this means for workers, you know, what are the implications for business leaders? What should they be doing to ensure collaboration, inclusion for their workers, and uh, to really set the stage for them to um, support their workers in this transition? Well, I would start with saying, ask everybody who has is a business leader to say, so how many of your employees are uh, experiencing homelessness now? Mm-hmm. Um, do you know? <laughs> Most people have no idea. Right. And by employees, I include all the, not just your staff, but also, you know, the, the person in the corner who's cleaning your offices after hours. They're also your employees. So just knowledge helps. <laughs> Right. And then after that, I think it's about what can, what do you feel is your social contract with your with your employees? Because frankly, for a healthcare institution, you may be at risk if uh, if you don't know the answer to that question. And as your nurse falls asleep during her operation or something, that's that's not a good thing. Um, so then after that, it's about what can where is the place that one can devote one's capabilities to addressing the clear challenges that our communities face. And there are so many things that every, again, the private sector is the engine of our economy. It brings together the capabilities of, of, uh, of, a, of a population in a way which allows us to do things together. So we are good at certain things. How, which of those things will help us in a community? And that could be working with, if you are a fair tra- if you are a, a coffee supplier or a, co- you know, a quick server, maybe that's working with farmers. If you, are a, uh, if you are a retailer, maybe that's working in education. It's basically what you do is you educate, you educate your workers. So how would you take that skill and sort of and, and help? But I think those, that logic about sorting through what is the, the challenge for a 21st century company is fundamentally about understanding what are the challenges facing the community and what are the capabilities the company has. And then sort of let's pick something. Let's, right. let's pick something. Peter, would you have anything to, to add? I don't. Uh, I don't uh, provide. Uh, I have no strategies for business <laughs> leaders. Um, it's funny, you know, I was just thinking about the question, but, uh, you know, the, the, some of the biggest uh, companies do create nonprofits or support nonprofits that then go out and do the kind of work. And it's almost as if there needs to be an arm's length situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think major successful corporations do need to have a policy of giving, and most do. Mm-hmm. 
And then they can and easily do have a policy of cleaning up their own act, both socially and environmentally. Um, and that, th those are good things. And so those are the simple recommendations. Okay. Well, that I will conclude the, the presentation tonight. And our thanks to, to Dr. Lola Wetzel, um, Senior Partner and Director of the McKinsey Global Institute, uh, and Peter Calthrop, Urban Design and Planning Principal at HD, HDR. Um, if you'd like to support the club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit the website at www.commonwealthclub.org. And I'm Charles Atkins, and thank you for joining us this evening, and please take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.